Hey Compact Nation podcast fans, this is Emily Shields and I have a special request for you. We are busy preparing for season three. Can you believe it? And we would like to know what you think. So if you could fill out our official podcast survey, we would really appreciate it. You can find the survey at compact.org slash pod survey. Complete it by the end of July, and we will use your comments to make our podcast even better. Tell us if you like the format. Tell us who you want to interview. Tell us which have been your favorite guests. Again, that's compact.org slash pod survey between now and the end of July. Thanks. everybody, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. I'm your co-host, J.R. Jameson, and I'm joined here today with my colleague, Eric Hartman, who is the co-founder of GlobalSL.org and the executive director of the Center for Peace and Global Citizenship at Haverford College. Eric will be sitting in today in place of Andrew and Emily because we are at the University of Notre Dame for the fifth global service learning summit and we just took part of a panel which we'll go to today and that will be that will take place of the traditional interview and Eric and I will be the two individuals who are kind of your co-hosts around that episode. So Eric, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be part of it. Thanks. So we go back quite a ways. I think I first met you online around 2011 or 2012 on Twitter through the account which is Building a Better World, which is transitioned or maybe always has been, globalsl.org. That's how I first found you. We connected on Twitter, and then I think I met you in person at Our Slice when it was in Baltimore in 2012. And then I've just kind of watched your career uh, flourish over time around your global service learning, or as you called it earlier today, uh, changing the language some to community-based ethical engagement, uh, which which I appreciated hearing you say that um, on the panel. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, before we go into the interview of the panel, what brought you to the field of global service learning or global community engagement? What was that spark for you that you determined, aha, this is where I'm focusing my energy to make a difference? Sure, thanks for the question. I, um, you know, I had a bit of background in service learning and civil engagement. I'd done my master's degree in political science, uh, really doing a thesis on how co-curricular civic engagement can support students' civic identity development. Mm -hmm. And I was doing all I could to find my right location at the intersection of sort of community action and political inquiry. As a result, worked with this small nonprofit organization that I first volunteered with and then they hired this part-time person uh, called Amazaji. Mm-hmm. The organization that supports a lot of global service learning today. Through Amazaji, they saw my background, and this is around two, 2002 or so, 2001, 2001. And um, they saw a lot of universities using language of global citizenship and saying that they wanted to do service learning programs. Mm-hmm. And they sort of said, okay, well, we have this faculty member who has a strong background in. Um, who was a Latin American studies person, but that person didn't know anything about service learning pedagogy. Mm-hmm. So I got matched with that person to go to 
uh, Peru had some um, had Spanish proficiency. I'm always embarrassed to speak in Spanish, but um, I have the proficiency. That was a significant plunge for me. It was the first time in the context of broadly referred to as the Global South. Um, and I was there, in theory, to help integrate the course uh, using the principles of the service learning uh, movement or area of practice. And one thing just really captured my curiosity while we were doing that work. What on earth do we mean when we say educating for global citizenship? Uh -huh. I don't know if we ever got it. And are there better or worse ways to do it? That became my dissertation. Uh -huh. And um, I've been working at it one way or another since. Yeah, and, and that has been your main area of focus. And what I appreciate when I read your articles, you're constantly reminding the field or pushing back on the field around intentionality and creating these experiences. And you've been hypercritical of volunteerism, which I think is great because sometimes the experiences, if they're not created with intentionality, can lend themselves more to volunteerism, which can be really destructive on communities. Um, now we're fast forwarding to where we are today at the fifth global service learning summit the closing plenary which we did a live recording of the podcast which our listeners will get to hear in just a moment there was language that came up around um, being purposeful critical engagement of global service learning authentic spaces and opportunity for dialogue are you starting to see a shift in the field in ways that uh, you've wanted it to go or is it even expanding beyond where you thought the field would go? Both of those things. Mm -hmm. And um, certainly there's the way that it's amazing the ways in which different universities, colleges, and uh, nonprofit networks take up fair trade learning as a conceptual framework mm -hmm. and start to do new kinds of work to do multi directional exchange to flip the script on. Um, who's doing service and who's doing learning. Mm -hmm. um, I just spoke to someone in the back of the hall that we're sitting in who made that plenary and was sharing with me some work in the University of Washington system that is intentionally intentionally encouraging south-to-south uh, -south exchanges and exchanges that are multi-directional uh, within the Washington system. Uh, those are all kind of unexpected and joyful discoveries whenever I hear something like that. One thing I wasn't quite in your question, but the other piece of the growth is there's always this critical question of how many people are just not connecting with the critical side of this work. Mm -hmm. And there's still extraordinary numbers of university and college uh, volunteer sending operations that don't have a critical lens in it. Mm -hmm. What I appreciated about the panel, most of the panelists brought that up and pushed back on uh, the way we're structured in higher education and how we need to destructure some of those um, structures in order to create more of that critical lens of this work. Uh, on the panel, we had Janice McMillan, we had Marisol Morales, we had Richard Slimbach, we had Nicole Webster. Let's go to that panel now.
Welcome to the live recording of the Compact Nation podcast. (laughs) That was pretty good, but you could do a little better. (laughs) So let's just turn that up about five notches, if we will, all right? (laughs) Um, And the reason why is because the back mites may not currently pick that up, so we're trying to get it through the feed that is up here, if that makes sense, so. Welcome to the live recording of the Compact Nation podcast. We're coming to you live from the University of Notre Dame at the fifth Global Service Learning Summit in the Notre Dame Auditorium. I want to turn the keys over to my colleague, Eric Hartman, who is the co-founder of GlobalSL.org and executive director of the Center for Peace and Global Citizenship at Haverford College, who will introduce the panel and moderate the discussion. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, JR. That was an incredibly effective uh, introduction. I really appreciate it. Particularly effective because I was able to gather with several incredible colleagues who are here with me, who I'll introduce in just a moment, last evening. And we decided we're going to, as we begin talking, not go sort of one after the other as we get into things, but try to in try to be like the view. And I've been instructed very clearly to channel my inner whoopee, so um, I'm gonna do my best. We're gonna do our best. Um, But before getting to that, I wanted to thank very clearly everyone who's in the room um, and everyone who came to the summit for taking the time to think with us about how we do work that is complicated, intersectional, uh, at a particular moment in time within very complicated histories, hopefully community-driven, often critical and political, um, and at this intersection of higher ed and community organizations that's often quite difficult to navigate. Uh, So thank you for coming and being with us uh, and taking the time to think with us. Your time is the most impressive uh, kind of demonstration of your commitment to the work. Also, speaking of time, the host institution put an incredible amount of time into preparing for this. Uh, Most of us in the room have hosted guests at one time or another, often from around the world, often in large groups. 320 is a pretty large group to work with as a completely volunteer committee uh, working things uh, through. So Rachel Thomas Morgan, who really led that effort, Rosie McDowell and Suzanne Wilson. I just wanted to give a round of applause and thank you. And I know and I'm sure that applause extends to the students, staff members who I've never met, but all of whom have worked quite hard on this work. Um, Also, you know, about um, the year 2011, There were some Global SL kind of uh, co-founders who I did not meet with and I did not know and I had not met at that point. Washington University, through the leadership of Amanda Moore McBride, uh, Eric Malin, who's with us today, as well as uh, Brian Hansen at Northwestern, uh, and Eric's at Duke Engage, they all got together and said, this is very complicated work. We really need to spend time across communities thinking about how to advance the practice and do it better. 
Um, about 50 people got together in St. Louis in 2011, and here we are today. And uh, with deep thanks to that, it's uh, to their work, we've also merged, in a sense, online with Campus Compact, the national organization advancing the public purposes of higher ed, to uh, have compact.org, uh, what is it, compact.org slash global-sl, right, this hub for the community online, trying to accumulate resources. And I know some of you who are here with us have not been there. It's been interesting conversations how people arrive here. But that website is a place, Global SL, we work to have really thousands of paper, pages of peer-reviewed documents, uh, resources. If you're interested in sharing your work, so many of you have already uh, posted there and offered resources there. But what we try to do is keep this community in conversation online when we can't be together in person. And many thanks to Nora Reynolds, who facilitates that community uh, today, who's also put a great deal of time and effort into bringing this summit together. So these extraordinary folks are the people I've learned a lot from over the last several years. I'm just going to introduce now alphabetically, actually. Janice Lyon is here from Cape Town, or Janice McMillan is here from Cape Town, uh, South Africa. Um, is here from Cape Town. She authored something called Learning, Service, and International Contexts, Partnership-Based Service Learning and Research in Cape Town, South Africa, uh, in 2014 in the Michigan Journal of Community Service Learning, which is a lovely integration and uh, collection of decades of thought and work about campus community partnerships. Um, the uh, Janice McMillan serves as the director of the University of Cape Town Global Citizenship Program and also an associate professor role and with the Teaching and Learning Center there. Uh, Marisol Morales on the, your far right is vice president for network leadership at Campus Compact. Um, several years ago, I came across this incredible chapter called Asset-Based Community Development and Integral Human Development, Two Themes Undergirding an International Service Learning Program that Marisol co-authored with uh, her colleague Arturo Caballero Barone about a partnership between uh, institutions while she was associate director of the Steen Center at DePaul University. Uh, that chapter's in Crossing Boundaries, Tension and Transformation in International Service Learning. Richard Slimbach, to Marisol's immediate uh, right, is a professor of global studies at Azusa Pacific University. Uh, he's produced a great deal of scholarship. Uh, one piece is a book called Becoming Worldwise, A Guide to Global Learning, which came out in 2010. And Nicole Webster, here on my immediate left, is Associate Professor of Youth and International Development at Penn State University and Director of the Burkina Faso Penn State Collaboration Center. In 2010, she wrote Student Identities and the Tourist Gaze in International Service Learning, a University Project in Belize, which is in the Journal of Higher Education and Engagement. Those are some of the products of these folks' work. I know they come from places um, of continued crossing boundaries between campus and community, uh, which is how I like to think of my own work. My name is Eric Hartman. I'm with the Center for Peace and Global Citizenship at Haverford and with Global SL. And I've recently completed a book, uh, Community-Based Global Learning the theory and practice of ethical engagement at home and abroad. So in talking uh, last night, one thing we emerged for us was the deep value of criticality in this kind of work. And I wanted to open by asking, 
my colleagues, excuse me, why is criticality, <clears throat> criticality so important in your work? How is it rooted in your work, and, and how do you engage it from where you are? I'm starting. All right. Um, so for me, it really comes out of um, how I experienced uh, sort of service learning community engagement as a college student. And um, I was in a course called uh, US Colonialism of Puerto Rico. And this was before I went to DePaul University. Um, and this was before the Stain Center or any sort of formal service learning program. But that particular faculty member was a community activist in his own right. And so really connected us with the Puerto Rican community in Chicago. Um, and I'm Puerto Rican. And through this ethnic studies course is really where I found um, the connection between uh, my experience at the university and what was happening in the community. And it brought together for me this place of um, both learning about myself and then also learning about the university's role in the gentrification of my community uh, of humble um, uh, from Lincoln Park. And that was the critical perspective that introduced me to the community work and then extended into um, my undergraduate studies in Latin American Latino studies and then when I did a study abroad to Spain. So bringing that critical perspective to sort of the former colonizer of um, where my family was from. And that has continued in the work that I do. Um, and I think my international experience in Spain um, as a student, both in terms of being Latino and having to confront right the, the reality of histories uh, and my history, but also the appreciation for that aspect of, of my culture also allowed me to have a critical view that was not only a critique of the history of colonialism, both in the US context and in relation to uh, Spain and the Americas, but also how that wove itself into my own identity and has continued in the work that I do with communities in the United States as well as abroad. Um, so really, that first introduction to that criticality came through um, a community engagement course in ethnic studies. Um, and in the work that I continue to do with students, I make sure that those experiences relate back to their identity, particularly for uh, the new majority students that we have in our colleges and universities. I, I think I would echo that comment. Um, my lens was shaped first and foremost um, by my experience going abroad. And I went to South Africa three weeks after Nelson Mandela had been inaugurated. Um, and it was an eye-opening experience. For one, just the simple fact that I had a chance to, to be in the presence of someone who I had read about, admired, um, but to hear him speak um, about his experience, about his lived experiences, and the theoretical underpinnings and foundations that shaped who he was, was what I really drew from as a student, someone who was beginning to engage um, within the community. I was introduced um, 
to CRT, so critical race theory, and some of these other theoretical underpinnings that I had heard about, but to see it lived out uh, and to see someone to be able to speak about it with such fluency, um, that for me was the eye opener. It was, as Oprah says, the aha moment. Um, and that aha moment began to carry through in my own work and being very intentional about what I was doing. But I have to say, it wasn't until probably maybe seven years ago that I began to put a name on it. And I think for many of us um, who are scholars or faculty of color, sometimes we are in spaces where we don't feel that we can put a name on what we do because we're afraid of maybe um, how our colleagues might think of us or maybe things that we may hear in the academy. But it was at that point um, when a student said, why don't you really say what it is that you're doing. You're being intentional when you take students to X, Y, and Z location. Um, you are being intentional when you write about this. And it wasn't until that point I said, why is it that a student has to call me out on mm -hmm. the carpet? Um, so that intentionality and being purposeful about what I do in my work, um, I think has carried through. And I think now I stand a little bit taller and a little bit prouder because I know who I am. I mean, I can actually go next, Eric, thanks. Um, so I, before I start with my story, perhaps, I just need to maybe acknowledge Tim Stanton, um, who has been a mentor to me in many ways over many, many years, more than 20 years. And I think in, in, in some ways I'm here very much because of my relationship and work with Tim. So I would just like to acknowledge his leadership um, in the field and in my own, own experiences in South Africa. Um, I think I also just want to put up front two, two issues that I, I think I hope we can come back to in, in some ways. And the one is about positionality. And I, I talk of my own positionality as a, a white middle class woman working in South Africa in a field and a context that is profoundly unequal. Um, so that's the first um, thing I just want to note. And the second thing I want to note is the whole move towards decoloniality and student protests in the current context, because I think that I think we need to start thinking about that context in relation to this work, um, because I think that some there are parallels in the work of the global service learning field for me and the current calls around decoloniality um, and alienation of students in higher education, at least in, in my context. Um, so I really came into higher education through the nonprofit sector. Um, I worked there for a good number of years. And I realized when I moved into higher education that what was similar about where I was positioned in higher education and adult education, so I came into adult education working with community activists and trade unionists and my work in the nonprofit sector was really my interest in the intersection of education and development. I really interested in the nexus between the university and the world beyond the university. And I think, you know, I have a PhD in sociology, but I've never taught in a sociology department. And I'm not sure I'd want to. I'm, I'm, not, I'm really interested in practices that help the university think about its positionality, its role in a much bigger ecosystem. And so through working in adult education, through working in what we call social responsiveness at the university, 
um, for many years. I, um, I was involved in a national service learning um, program funded by the Ford Foundation. So kind of to link to Nicole's story, um, post-1994, there was a lot of interest and excitement in the country and many new policies. And one of these was a policy on higher education to ask higher education to be more responsive to its broader context. And that policy was then enacted in various ways, and one of them was the National Service Learning Project for, um, funded by Ford Foundation. Um, through the work in service learning, I, I found my tribe, I suppose you could say, but I also began to get increasingly critical of the work. And, and then through work with Tim in the Stanford program in Cape Town, having the opportunity to develop our practice critically was for me a really, really key um, motivator to keep going in the field because I could see how we could do this, world, this work aware of positionality, aware of inequality. Um, and I think it renewed my commitment to the field, but also began my much more critical engagement with the field and now finding myself the last piece of the puzzle is just directing a program on global citizenship for social justice is trying to think how can global service learning be but one means to achieving a bigger a bigger set of values and goals so so my journey has kind of been through service learning global service learning but I now find myself maybe seeing it as as one means to a kind of a bigger whole that locates issues of, of inequality and um, critique at the center of the work that I do. So um, my own entree into higher education and what I describe positionally as the edge of inside um, uh, that institution really came through a 10-year period from 19 to when I married at 30 of uh, deliberate vagabonding. I traveled throughout the world, worked with different communities, lived in different intentional communities from, uh, from uh, uh, Tibet to the Bruderhof. Um, and I recognized during that, that period of time that um, the most impactful experiences of my life came through immediate, immersed, embodied, emotional experience. Experiences that I had never um, um, approximated in terms of its uh, potential to move my consciousness. Uh, within a uh, campus-bounded classroom. At the same time, I loved ideas. And along the way, I picked up degrees uh, just to follow really my intellectual bliss and ended up needing a job and being hired 20-something uh, years ago at Azusa Pacific University. Uh, to, teach in, uh, to teach multicultural education in the School of Education. The 92 uprising came and uh, the provost walked into my office and said, uh, while buildings were being burnt and looted, we're sorry, doing- Rich, and you're talking about Los Angeles? This is LA, yeah. sorry. Yeah. yeah, associated with Rodney King and said, is we're doing precious little to raise up a new generation of cultural mediators. Uh, can you develop a program? And I thought, wow, this is 
a great opportunity. So out of that came a bachelor's program and then eventually a master's degree program. And I've never left the community of higher education, but I've also never left those memories of that 10-year period uh, which marked me. Uh, during this time, I have uh, grown to uh, appreciate the intellectual and strategic value of megacities. Uh, cities make up 2% of the physical habitat on Earth. By 2050, they will house 70% of humanity and currently generate 80% of the greenhouse gas emissions. To have a sustainable planet, we need sustainable cities. And the, the deepest intellectual question that I've had is whether or not the modern industrial city can be made just peace-loving and sustainable. That question drives my practice uh, within programs that really have, in Ivan Illich's language, uh, have a de-schooling character. They're off campus, they're embodied in community life, they're complete immersion, they uh, do things that scare our legal counsel and other administrators uh, at our institution, uh, but have produced remarkable student outcomes. So that's where I find the criti criticality. It's kind of against the grain of the institution that feeds me <laughs> uh, for its behalf and for the behalf of the communities that we're embedded in. Thanks. Thanks for those introductions. And I think they speak to the space of individual student learning and individual intersectionality among students and facilitators the whole way up this sort of individual community to large structural issues and we're trying to continuously engage with. So I was wondering if you could ping pong a little bit. I heard Marisol talking about meeting students where they are and Janice mentioned intersectionality. And I wonder if you could give us some examples of how that works in classrooms for you. Yeah. Um, for me, I mean, one of the th things I, uh, before I joined um, higher ed, I was uh, working in the, the community um, for about years and uh, for about eight years and hosting students um, on a regular basis or doing community tours and other things. So I was a community partner. And in that sense, um, I wanted to make sure that um, in the work that we were showing um, students and university partners is that we were um, pushing against the stereotypes of our neighborhood that are often um, found, especially when universities are sending white affluent students to communities of, of color. Um, and I think the community that I was working in in hum Humble Park in Chicago was really conscious about, about that and the role that we had. Um, when I joined higher ed, when I joined DePaul, I had the opportunity to create an international service learning program um, to Puerto Rico. Um, and uh, if you didn't learn from the hurricane that we just recently had, Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States and is treated as such. Um, 
but I was able to develop this with another Puerto Rican colleague, and we really wanted to do it with those students in, in mind, with Puerto Rican students, Latino students in mind. And we had this uh, bringing it home model. So the idea is that when you're abroad, you could do very limited service. The impact is very little, and it's more for your benefit, really, than the communities that you're working with. But what you can do, particularly as a US citizen, is take the learnings that you um, have gathered abroad and then bring it back in terms of policies and other things. So we use that model to create these experiences with these uh, Puerto Rican Latino students in mind, students of color in mind. And we were able to um, really make this a homecoming for many students, right? Uh, and speak to uh, both history and cultural identity and other things, and then link it back to the Puerto Rican community in Chicago. So really that idea of transnationalism. Um, and as I worked with students and had the ability to create that, I mean, that's the lens that I try to develop my programming around, whether it's um, you know local uh, community engagement programs or uh, in the international um, context is with those students in mind. And what I found is that all students benefit from, from being able to experience it from that lens because it's very um, different. Um, and in the work now with Campus Compact, it's thinking about how do we introduce those lenses to those member campuses and to our compacts across the country so that we are uh, better able to serve uh, the new majority students that, that we have, the students of color, the first generation students, the students who uh, will be making up our universities, have in many cases, and will continue to make up our universities. So I mean, I'm thinking of that question, Eric, just <clears throat> in relationship first to, to the work I did at Stanford. Um, and I just think of um, Rich, your comment about embodied work. Um, I think I was just made profoundly aware through working with students in, in Cape Town that so many of the most important experiences and memories from them are not necessarily what they taught, but it's what they experienced in those kind of partnerships with, with community. And so I became really interested in trying to understand the connection between kind of head and heart learning. The kind of notion of you know knowing, doing, but also being, and unapologetically providing space for being. And that references the work of Ron Barnett and others, but I think I think that unapologetic connection to being was probably useful both for the students, but also with me, because I had to connect to my own being. And I think that was a, a moment of deep insight in that order to do the work and ask students to do very complex work, I had to do very complex work to make it authentic. And so the notion of kind of co-learning um, and seeing clearly there are power relations in any higher education classroom, but trying as much as possible to be transparent and authentic in my role um, helped me understand that to do this work, I have to do work. There's an ontological component to the way that I need to do the work. And then to kind of fast forward that to the work I do in the Global Citizenship Program, I really do strive to, to work with my colleagues who are young colleagues, mostly next generation black scholars. And that's my commitment again to the transformation work is how can I use my experience and privilege to build really um, authentic relationships with my colleagues. They're not outside of power relations, but they, they, you know, they really are opportunities for me to be called out, for me to actually learn about a next generation way of approaching this work. So I suppose it's through co-learning, it's through stepping back myself from the classroom space momentarily and allowing other voices to be in the classroom space and maybe me playing more of an educative role one step behind. And so it's really just trying to create spaces where stories and experiences matter. Um, it's about agency within structure, I suppose, but it's just about um, 
harnessing one's experience in authentic ways in context of inequality um, and trying to envisage a role for oneself that is that is authentic and is, is more about co-learning rather than um, you know more traditional roles in higher education. <clears throat> That's in, in, incredibly important work and I think um, someone said to me, more than one person has mentioned to me something that I'm reminded of seeing the quality of what Marisol's describing and the programming you're developing and Janice, you opting yourself into that work. Now, as most of our campuses are still staffed in a way that reflects white supremacist and colonialist patterns, right? Absolutely. Are there ways in which we, and I wonder if this is something, you know, Campus Compact or faculty learning communities or um, Global SL, this network, but are there ways in which we can nudge faculty who don't opt in and staff, who don't opt into this the way that Janice seems to have done, um, toward this critical personal work that is part of productive engagement with, with people off campus? Go, go ahead, Nicole. The first thing I want to say is that um, we have to those of us who are in the classroom, whether it be in informal or uh, formal learning settings, we have to let our students know that we cannot allow others to reframe those conversations that are important to them. So what I mean by that um, is when you tell a story, you cannot allow someone who's not sat in your shoes, who's walked the walk that you have, begin to tell that story and narrate it from a perspective where they now have agency. And I think a lot of our students um, don't understand, especially um, now when I talk about students, I'm particularly talking about students of color. Sometimes they come into the classroom and they don't understand the agency and the power that they do have. Maybe they don't realize that when you speak up and speak out, um, that it is not necessarily being you know, as some people may say, the angry person in the room. But it's allowing your voice to be heard. So I think that we need to create these spaces that allow these students um, to talk about those, those experiences, to understand what it's like to, to live in those, um, to live in their shoes, and what does that, what does that look like? I think the other thing is when we talk about creating authenticity um, with our programming efforts, that we really have to be intentional about who we bring to the table. So many of us in this room, we have experienced this global service learning. We, we put together these great programs. But I'd like to ask you, how many of you prior to even leaving for your site have contacted someone from that community or that country or culture, whatever the, the thematic area is, to come and talk to your students. Why is it that the first time that for some of our students, mm -hmm. they will see someone who doesn't look like them, doesn't speak that same language, but yet we're saying we're trying to create authentic experiences. Mm -hmm. How is that authentic when you're setting your students up for failure? Because the first time they walk in and they hear someone who um, maybe is speaking in quote unquote a dialect, because we have that as students have said that, well, they're speaking a dialect, not a language. So why is it that we're not creating these authentic spaces, opportunities for students to talk about these things prior to um, us leaving or prior to a, a, a program leaving, but we really say that we're trying to create an authentic 
um, service learn, global service learning experience. So I said it has to begin in the classroom, and it has to begin with us as faculty or educators or facilitators to check those things at the door to make sure that we're creating the right experience for our students. Mm -hmm. I think I got off tangent, but I... I, well, and, and I don't know, but I had to say that. That was a really important set of comments, clearly. And uh, I think Rich had uh, some, something of a response as well, this question of how to nudge and push yes, faculty. The same, the same idea of, of producing authentic experience for all. Now, in my context, it was a predominantly white, faith-based, private institution. When we began, that space, that public space, required students to leave the campus compound and move into the borderlands. And uh, that's where uh, I, I typically call it the four R's. First, they had to uh, relocate. They had to narrow the distance, the cultural and physical distance between uh, themselves and, and the phenomena and the peoples that they sought to understand. And then they had to get close enough to them, the, the second R, the uh, uh, relationship, so that they could uh, see and feel uh, the realities and sometimes the urgencies of their lives. So our programs all required semester-long homestays and culturally different families, complete dependence on public uh, transportation, um, interning and grassroots change-oriented organizations under uh, typically black and brown uh, leadership. And students then became, came to an awareness of race, class, uh, uh, gender, ideological, religious, um, power centers in these that mediated these relationships very very powerful kind of awakening oftentimes disturbing awakening for them um, that relationship was um, necessary for the third uh, R, which was taking a fair share of responsibility. So seeing that urgency and then uh, exploring how their life is connected to and perhaps complicit in the realities that they are, have been embedded in now for several months. Again, that requires social analysis, systems, thinking, connecting the dots in so many different areas, and coming to a place of doing deep cultural assessment of the, of the world that serves them well, that they're comfortable in, that they benefit from, that oftentimes introduces harms elsewhere, either domestic or abroad, where does that leave me then in the very practical choices that I make in how I eat, uh, uh, whether I drive or not, uh, what communities I'm going to live in, what kind of person I'm going to marry, what, who my neighbors will be, uh, how much energy 
energy I'm going to use, et cetera, et cetera. So in terms of, uh, of human and natural communities, that assessment was necessary, building on the relocation, the relationship, the taking and assuming of their fair share of responsibility, and then the acting. And the acting involved also, we had a seminar following all of the uh, two years of, of immersion education where they think about uh, even the work that they do. David Graeber, an anthropologist uh, at London University, just uh, wrote a book called, uh, based on his article, Bullshit Jobs. And there he talks about the difference between jobs that are socially contributive, you know, that, that, uh, that are satisfying to the workers, that don't introduce ecological and social harm, I mean, we can talk about the tremendous economic gains of, of China and India, but at what social and environmental costs has, have, have those gains been won? And so an accounting of the gains and the losses having to do with modern urban culture, I think, is such an important part of deep global learning uh, to complete the circle and to lead students into responsible action through their lifestyle and their work. Rich, did I miss number four? What was the fourth R? Fourth R. Uh, oh, the, the uh, cultural assessment is the reasoning. Okay. Uh, all right. So that's, that's the, based on the social analysis, uh, the reasoning. And the responsibility encompasses mm -hmm. both the assuming of it, the acknowledging you know, their place in the global economy, as well as then making those fateful choices regarding personal lifestyle and the nature of the work that they'll choose. I mean, I like that um, that sort of analysis and, and breakdown, but I'm wondering what it would look like in the context of students of color who already live in those realities. So they're, you know, the having to take the bus and figuring that like that's it. So their spaces of difference um, are is the university, mm -hmm. and so how do we, in that um, sort of structure, account for for those um, students and as we're thinking about these ways to make sense of the work we do, so these four R's or, or other things, like who, whose lens is that? Who's, whose lens is that for? And how do we need to either create an, another lens or invite spaces for other lenses for the other kinds of, of students that we have coming into um, our space? And it's not like students of color arrived yesterday in the universities and we're just trying to figure it out, right? But they've been ignored and their experiences have been ignored. And we know um, that the amount of uh, students, the percentage of students of color participating in study abroad or global service learning or whatever is very small. And so how do we create both the opportunity for folks to do it, but one, but also programs that reflect them? When we did our program um, at the at the uh, at DePaul, like you know, first I had to fight with study abroad about it because they wanted us to use a contracting service to get all of this. I'm like, no, I have the relationships in Puerto Rico. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it cheap. So we spent a month out there for $2,500. And because I had access to budget, 
like the Stain Center contributed $5,000 towards the program so that we could make it affordable for students of color to participate. And so although we had you know, students of all backgrounds, the majority of the students who participated in our program were students of color. And so like, I think the intentionality piece is really important, but also in terms of the cost factor. We did it over the summer, and but the students took a class in the spring before and the fall after, so they didn't have to pay summer tuition that didn't count for like financial aid didn't cover. So these are all the sort of nuances of making this experience, one, available to them, but also intentional. And those for those students who weren't students of color, like how do we introduce that critical analysis to, analysis to them? Because there were some students who were going through some stuff when we were out there. Um, and being able to contextualize it and, and offer them a critical lens to see themselves in that. So I think that piece around your responsibility is key, and that can apply for students across the, the board, but what lenses are we using as we're, we're developing the, these programs? And I think for faculty too, like just like we don't want all faculty doing service learning, Right, because not everybody, I mean, there are some faculty I would never send into the community just for the community's sake. Um, I think that we need to think about that in this work too. Like, how are we uh, being critical of our own perspective? How are we engaging in continuous improvement? Are we continuing to replicate the stereotypes in the way that we're developing things? Is this just a extended spring break for, for students, right? So, and I think, especially if we're doing service learning, global service learning, we have even more of a responsibility to have that critical lens in how we both frame and develop this work and build relationships with the community partners. Hi everyone, JR here. I hope you're enjoying the panel conversation from the fifth Global Service Learning Conference. For your convenience and respect of your time, we've broken this episode into two clips. To continue listening, click on the next episode in the queue. Thank you for listening. Season two of the Compact Nation podcast is produced by Naval Mahdi for the Campus Compact headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts, and its 1,100 colleges and universities around the globe. All rights reserved. Learn more about Campus Compact at compact.org. The hosts of the Compact Nation podcast are Emily J. Shields, J.R. Jamison, and Andrew Seligson. Recommendations for guests, topics, or general questions can be sent to podcast at compact.org or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag CompactNationPod. The Compact Nation podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us.